0: Andrew, welcome to the show. We are super excited to have you on today.
1: Thanks so much, guys. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah. And like I was telling you, as we were getting warmed up, uh, pretty much everyone coming into this episode, I think will have listened to our about two hour discussion about the war on normal people already. And if you're coming into this episode and you haven't listened to that episode, I would recommend checking it out. Because I think what we want to do is skip straight to the deeper topics around universal basic income, some of the questions that maybe you don't get to talk about as much in your normal interviews. And I think it'll be a really fun discussion building on what you already cover in the book. So I think a great way to get started is what happens after you give some of these talks and interviews or go on these shows. Because you introduce UBI, people might read about it in your book, but then there are naturally going to be some people who challenge it. And so when people push back, what do you usually hear are the main dislikes or challenges?
1: You know, the, the main objections tend to fall into three main camps. One is, how can we possibly afford this? Two is, won't this turn everyone into drug-using, video game-playing, wastrels? And three is, uh, won't this cause mass inflation? So those are the three major uh, objections that people have, which I think are deeply misplaced for the most part. Um, There's research that debunks each of them, but I'd say those are the three most common.
0: Do you find any of those three Compelling at all, or would you say that the research is sufficient enough to debunk them?
1: Well, uh, to the first is how how can we possibly afford this? Uh, like that one is objectively misplaced. <laughs> like our <laughs> economy is up to nineteen trillion dollars; it's grown four trillion in the last ten years, and thousand dollars a month in the scheme of the economy per American adult, eighteen to sixty-four, is an additional cost on top of our current spending of approximately one and a half trillion. So even if you look at like the very very top line where you think okay economy of 19 trillion one and a half trillion to citizens 90 plus percent of which is going to get spent almost immediately in the economy anyway <laughs> like this so that there's it's eminently affordable it's just that we've done a really really terrible job uh, managing our finances over the last number of years where we have these uh, military budgets that climb to the sky like entitlement budgets that that just go up that people resent and because they don't feel like they're seeing it and the problem really is this culture where there is still this Stigma attached to all of it, and that's really one of the most powerful things about uh, universal basic income. Is that if you start to believe in a sense of abundance and possibility, um, because that's what most of it is, in my opinion, it's like these psychic barriers people have around, like, oh, you know, like I hoard my money, government should hoard its money, you should hoard your money too. <laughs> like, like it's like a like, like that. That's really the the mental block. But the first objection that we can't afford it is just. Silly, given that you know our economy is still growing in the top line from a nineteen trillion dollar um, mark that's unprecedented in human history. So, so the first, what I say is, our present mismanagement aside, we could totally afford this. And I, you know, I go into and I, in the book I actually don't go into that deeply, so I'm happy to go into it a little more deeply now. So, top line number of two trillion dollars to instill a freedom dividend of a thousand dollars a month. You get five hundred billion or so from current spending. Uh, value-added tax at half the European level gets you about $800 billion. So you're about two-thirds of the cost of of a universal basic income. Now, the great thing is if you give every American $1,000 a month, the economy will grow and we'll get back 25% of that growth in new tax revenue because that's just what happens when GDP goes up. So if the economy would grow by between two and and $2.5 which is the Roosevelt Institute projects, if you were to plow this money into people's hands where they'd spend it, because... 59% 59% of Americans right now can't pay an unexpected $500 bill and everyone's cash strapped, so most of the money would get spent. So if you assume $2 trillion in GDP growth as a result of this, you get back $500 billion in new tax revenue. So at this point, you're at 90% of the cost of the universal basic income. And then there's going to be a value multiplier where I put money into people's hands, they'll stay out of the emergency room, they'll stay out of jail, they'll stay off the street. And all of those things are incredibly expensive. We spend over a trillion dollars on those things right now. So if you project that those costs would go down even slightly, you're going to save hundreds of billions in terms of what we're currently spending. So and that to me is conservative, because some studies have shown that if you put a dollar into the hands of a poor family, there's like a value multiplier of up to seven dollars. So it's possible that this thing would pay for itself in dramatic ways. But even conservatively, it's affordable. So that's like the first major objection. I'll stop there because I've been doing a lot of talking. (laughs)
0: Well, yeah, I I had one question on that, actually, because you mentioned that it would kind of infuse another, what, two and a half trillion dollars into the economy. But that money is coming from this value add tax, which is extra money people are spending that's not going towards their actual consumption or to the businesses they're buying from. Right. So isn't it just two million cycling from the top consumers into the people who aren't above that $120,000 a year in spending? Or am I understanding it wrong?
1: No, I mean, it, it's a good. So there is an issue where the two and a half trillion dollar estimate is based upon just printing money. And because you have a VAT, you're going to have less than two and a half trillion. So because you're looking at a VAT of 800 billion, like, you know, i I I'm using two trillion as an estimate of how much it would be, though you could argue for a little bit less than that. The issue, though, is that If you give a wealthy person in America an extra $1,000 a month, it will have absolutely zero impact. Like it'll just like fall into an account somewhere and do nothing. If you give it to anyone in the bottom 80% of the country, then it's going to get spent and do something that will actually induce economic growth. So if you have a value added tax that effectively takes some money from the highest consumers in the country and puts it in the hands of the bottom 80 to 90% of the population, that will be a massive uh, stimulus.
2: That makes sense. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So like, because if it's coming from the top consumers, then instead of sitting in their bank accounts effectively, right, it would be actually out in the economy and being spent.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so the Roosevelt Institute projected full-on uh, economic growth of two and a half trillion dollars. Now, that their estimate was not with the VAT. So you should bring that down to something like, you know, 1.7 to, to two. And so that those are the numbers that, you'd use, but the economy would for sure grow because a lot of this money is not coming from the vet.
0: Well, kind of. uh, And I think, Andrew, you're a fan of Yuval Noah Harari, too. You mentioned him in your book, right? He he mentioned something like this in Homo Deus, uh, which was what, 10 episodes ago, Neil? Yeah. That basically, the more the more that money is concentrated and just kind of sitting around, the less the economy can actually grow, right? It needs a certain amount of mobility. And so I guess in some ways, and I think Andrew also mentioned that this was why some conservatives really like UBI, is it's a way to kind of increase the amount of money moving through the system instead of having it all sit in, you know, the government banks, if you're looking at it conservatively, or rich people's banks, if you're looking at it liberally.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, there's a very deep conservative heritage around uh, universal basic income. It's one reason why we call it the freedom dividend here in the campaign, because some people like it more with the word freedom in it.
0: <laughs> I believe that.
1: But there's there's a there's a lot of wisdom to getting money out of the government pipes and out of in like large institutions and and really wealthy individuals and getting in the hands of the average American. There's going to be so much value add there that uh, in my mind, this really will have a value multiplier. But even if it doesn't, it's affordable.
2: Yeah, and kind of related to what Nat was just asking, like, what are the Different objections you hear when you talk to uh, liberals versus conservatives because I'd ima- I mean, you outlined a couple of them in your book, but um, yeah, I'd imagine their issues with the plan are are different, right?
1: Well, you know, the, the thing, and I have, a, I have the I have the sense of it clear as day is that really the problem for everyone is that it just doesn't seem possible. Like that—that's to me like the problem for liberals and conservatives alike. It's like just impossible, <laughs> or like that's literally fantastic. And it, and it just shows how badly we've atrophied as a society, <laughs> where uh, if shareholders of a company say, let's declare ourselves a dividend, everyone's like, sure, a thumbs up. I mean, are we not the owners and stakeholders of this society? I mean, is this not a democracy? Can we not decide to get together and vote ourselves a dividend, which would be totally affordable and would have incredible, uh, would make an incredible impact in lives around the country? There's absolutely nothing stopping us from doing it. It's just like to to me, like uh, we've lost our sense of possibility.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like it's like we're not thinking big enough. It's like we're we're not dreaming. Um, so I have a related question, but it's less on the the financial side and more on kind of the the emotional or kind of human side. and you you definitely talked about this in the book. you You had talked about this phenomenon of young men in particular choosing to sort of replace work with video games. How do you feel like if ubi were to be implemented you know do you view that as be you know as something that's going to increase like do you think more people will be doing that or do you think that um or I guess this isn't an or question but maybe more of um do you think it's necessarily a good or bad thing or are there things in the digital world you know like we've we've seen th- plenty of things where i mean twitch we we got into this in our episode but twitch and and some of these esports um the whole industry that's popping up around it, do you think there's a possibility that there's going to be almost this like digital video game economy that could arise as a result of UBI?
1: Well, you know, we, we have a joke around the office where, you know, everyone's obviously read my book and, uh, some of the guys in the office are avid gamers. And what they say is that they say like, I'm, I game and I'm married and, uh, you know, and everyone, like, I know who games is like very functional and parents and the, and the the rest of it. Um, there's certainly going to be massive growth in the esports economy in the years ahead, independent of UBI. The question is whether if you had $1,000 a month in people's hands, whether that would cause them to disengage from the non-video game world to a higher degree than they are now. And that's, you know, to me, one of the fundamental issues of this time. And having read the book, you know, um, one of my concerns really is among young men who by nature right now are, are, not, are, are not being uh, presented opportunities that are that appealing in the real world. Like uh, you know, there's this talk around like pink collar jobs and like a lot of men are not really uh, excited about that. And so to me, universal basic income would help men have options outside of the digital world because right now, the digital world is one of the cheapest ways you can pass the time. I mean, it, it's in economic terms, an inferior good, where the less money you have, the more time you spend in it. So logically, then, if you gave them more money, then they might do something else instead.
2: Yeah, I guess that actually makes that makes a lot of sense. Or They would even have more funds available to do other things, even if they want to right now. Maybe they don't have have those funds available.
1: Yeah, right. Right now, I mean, again, what's the cheapest thing you can do if you're a guy uh, to pass the time? It's like stand and play video games. You know? <laughs> you know.
2: Yeah. And the games are so good too at giving you those like emotional highs and sense of accomplishment, and you know it makes sense that people are sort of replacing that in the real world with this if they don't have the opportunities to to go do things in the real world.
1: You know, one thing I'm, I'm and I talk about this in the book somewhat. It's like you can spend a number of years playing video games and be pretty happy. But then eventually you start looking for something else. And then that's like the crucial period is that when you look for something else, if there's nothing else there for you, then you might say, screw it. I guess I'm just going to stay in and play these video games that are exciting me less and less and feel worse and worse about myself over time. So that's like the, the crucial bridge. Like if someone at that point, when they start looking up saying, okay, this has been great, but let's do something else. And then they have $10,000 $10,000 in the bank because they like had a UBI and they haven't been spending it or whatever and they're like, okay Now I'm gonna take this $10,000 and I'm gonna like, you know, go uh, Visit my cousin and stay there for a little while and see what they're up to and then, you know Like the, like hopefully it, it ends up being a springboard at that crucial juncture
0: Here's the follow-up that I kind of have about that that I wonder is I feel like parents of young men are in some ways this like super early UBI where you do have all of these young men lying around just playing video games. And that to me felt like one of the challenges, uh, with, with some of the ideas that if you gave people at least non not as many financial obligations, they would go out and do things. But that's also part of why I liked this social credits idea, because in some ways that takes the, the video game impulse and brings it to the real world and yes. actually makes it kind of like socially constructive instead of everyone sitting around uh, in their underwear like playing World of Warcraft. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Not
1: that we've ever done that. <laughs> not that no, no, of course not. <laughs> it
0: was a solid first half of my college career. Um, but, and, and actually, so the, the reason that I like this is that I, at least as the, with the video game theory, I kind of, or with the video game stuff, I have this theory that... A lot of men who get very into them either transition it to a another socially constructive thing. I think for me, at least it was getting into some entrepreneurship stuff. And that was like the new video game.
1: Yes. Same impulse, man. I had the same
0: thing. Okay. I I wondered if you had that from the book because it felt like you were hinting at that you had spent a lot of time on it at one point or another too. So can you explain the social credits idea a bit more because... It felt like it was introduced in the book, but in terms of how we might actually start to implement it in certain cities, I'd be I'd be really curious to hear more about that. And I think listeners would as well. Yeah, we both
2: love that idea. So that was, it's also for selfish reasons. We want to see it in the real world and like actually exist. <laughs> oh, we, we need to make it happen in the real world pronto. And, uh,
1: you know, I'm talking to various developers who have made progress on certain aspects of it but one of the the things uh, I would tie it to really is your physical presence. So let's say, what was the most benign thing you can think of where it, it's like, you know, you have some guys together for like, um, like watch a game or play some poker or whatnot. Um, you know, y- if you put like an official stamp on that, it, it could be that that by showing up to that, that each person for like the time they spend together, uh, in a way, the social credit is meant to sort of imbue gatherings with some kind of currency (laughs) yeah so the the goal would be that and it'd be very smartphone linked and dependent but that if you end up showing up to something then there are these micro credits that then flow both directions which is that you know you as the individual for being present like you get some social credits and then like the um, institution also gets some social credits and in, in a way what the government would be doing is the government would be imbuing the credit with some real value so that in a way it's like, and, and this is one of the things that drives me crazy is that there are there are these uh, pontificators or commentators who are like, Oh, Oh, you know, we need to change the culture. We need to change the culture. It's like, guys, what the heck drives culture? What drives culture is resources and incentives. <laughs> and, and so right. all the resources and, and incentives to, you know, like, become a, a management consultant or financial engineer. A- and then you have like these fake values around like trying to you know do something else. It's like, well, if you really want to value something, let's freaking put some resources to work. So the, the social currency might have to, like originally I was thinking it wouldn't be on the blockchain, but I'm becoming convinced that it should be on the blockchain. And it should also yeah. be local, is another thing I've been convinced of, which is that having it too removed. So then the social currency that you get You'd be able to use on anything within like a particular vicinity and you could use it outside of that region, too. But then there's like a conversion that takes place. So those are some of the early building blocks uh, of the social credit. But some people are very excited about helping to build it. I'm glad to say because there are a lot of people in the cryptocurrency world that love it
0: just as much as we
2: do. That's awesome.
0: Um, so I was going oh, to ask. This wouldn't actually, be. This wouldn't be a. Uh, sorry. No, no, <laughs> sorry go ahead I was just going to say this wouldn't be a made you think episode if we didn't talk about the blockchain at some point. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely necessary. But yeah, go ahead with the follow up.
2: Yeah. No, I was just going to ask uh, Andrew. Like, so one thing that came up in our discussion is: is there a reason why it has to be the government that gets the social credit thing started? Like, I was thinking, you know, if you had a progressive city where you know that maybe wasn't as big as like in New York, but you know imagine like in Austin or Portland or something like that where you could get you know some sufficient quantity of citizens um or and or companies to say, "Hey, like we want to participate in this thing. Do you see a world where that could be done you know sort of privately or as you said locally, and then maybe there's a you know some sort of base code or 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 template that different cities could follow you know there is nothing stopping it from. Uh, being piloted in different
1: places. And I'm glad to say that there is a pilot going on right now in Ypsilanti, Michigan.
2: Oh, interesting. Um, being
1: run by like a venture-backed company called Ying. No relation. <laughs> That's funny. And so that there are people that are starting to put this into place. Um, I was at a crypto conference yesterday in San Francisco, and there's another currency called Mint with a Y that they're working on something. Uh, but Ying is the furthest along I've seen. Um, the reason why I think that uh, it needs to be a government initiative is that at scale, I do think you need the federal government in terms of resources and clout to imbue it with value and and mainstream credibility and adoption. But that's probably not going to be the first thing that happens. One of the frustrations I've had really around this is that back in the 60s and 70s, when the US government was looking at rolling this out, they actually just gave extra money to thousands of people and, and conducted studies, which now just seems unthinkable. So we're relying upon Sam Altman and Chris Hughes and other people in other places to try and like run experiments for us, which uh, is stupid. It's like we should just be doing it ourselves at scale. Um, the problem is that even really philanthropic folks like Sam and Chris don't have, you know, like hundreds of millions are going to throw into this. So the, the trials end up being quite modest. Uh, you know, hats off to them because like they're putting their money where their mouth is, where no one else is. But th- this is something you need scale for. And so there's nothing stopping us from Initiating a social currency in a region, um, but it would take meaningful resources to do so. And I, I do think it needs to be the
2: government at some point. Got it. So, yeah, so you're saying like it, it could be like piloted and proven maybe at a very small scale, but to really do it, it would need to be, you know, some type of larger entity that could kind of bring it to scale.
1: That's right. Though if, if I were to become president, I would advocate for really significant moves and uh, massive rollouts and pilots because i think right now our government is way too risk averse when it comes to this stuff because they're just afraid of getting like called a wastrel or like solyndra or some other nonsense where we have to face facts that we're looking at the greatest economic and technological transition in human history it's going to have trillion dollar impacts and a responsible government would be spending tens and hundreds of billions trying to adjust and
2: adapt. Yeah. How do you so let's say you you are elected president, right? How do you view like you're obviously, you know, you got to still work with Congress and all that stuff, right? And obviously shape people's opinions. How are you viewing like the idea battleground, right? Like to your point, people are very conservative, it seems on both sides of the aisle uh, when it comes to these things. And, you know, it seems like the point of automation and the job losses and, you know, what's to come is not so clear to people outside of tech i mean i think it's starting to but it's almost like a race against the clock oh it's getting there i mean i'm, I'm happy to say that they're figuring it out <laughs> yeah <laughs> but then how do you get past some of the inertia right so like i mean maybe congress will change too but like let's say you get elected president you have to work with like this congress are there you know are there just given your background do you think you have a better chance of convincing people that this is one of those like ticking time bomb
1: well, the the great thing is, and this is some, one of the funnest things about my candidacy, is that let's imagine a world where I win and I'm president in 2021. They voted the Asian man who wants to give everyone money president. You know what I mean? Like yep. th- thats not like the incremental move. Yeah, that's a good
0: <laughs> point. Yeah, good point.
1: That's the holy cow. We need like a dramatic re-re-examination and adjustment of our economy, and a new social contract and the rest of it. So let's say there's a blue wave. Democrats take one or both houses of Congress, and I become president, then it's going to be on. Then the mandate is like, let's make the big move. And obviously, the big move is universal basic income if I were to win, because that's the core of my platform. So then we could pass it. Because with a Democratic Congress, uh, and if there are some holdout conservatives, my plan is to go to each of their districts and just stand there and say, like, your congressperson is standing between you and everyone in your family receiving $1,000 a month. Um, you want to change their that's mind? That's a great pitch. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, you know, you, would get, and there are enough conservatives too, who'd be on board with this because they would, um, you know, like find things to like about it because there are actually some very, very conservative ideas baked into universal basic income.
2: Yeah, that's for sure.
1: I, I'm not for big government, like as such, um, we have to be honest about what the government can and can't do. And one thing the government is excellent at is sending, um, large numbers of checks to people. Um, It's not great at a lot of other things. So we need to lean into its core competency. And that's actually something conservatives would get behind.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think so. uh, A common theme on this show, right, has been that uh, just in general, right, you don't want to use blanket rules, but in general, you know, we, we tend to like like decentralized or bottom up type of solutions. And that's one thing we both loved about what you explained in your book, right, of how you know, this is very different from the government coming down and saying, here's an $800 billion stimulus package, right? That's going to these four or five companies and hopefully they can disperse it properly. This is like, hey, let's give the money to all the people and they can decide what to do with it.
1: Which they totally should have done that first time too. Right. And that's going to be one of the fun things about my campaign is conveying to people that there's nothing stopping us from doing this, where like right now our politicians are contorting themselves into knots being like, we're going to do this for you. We're going to do that for you. And then if if, people understand it's like, wait, the government can just like send us checks? Like that's a thing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then the, the that becomes much more compelling than anything else under the sun. It's like free college. Um, guess what? That only works if like, you know, you're in the top 32% of the population that's going to go to college or have a kid like of a certain age. And if you just graduate from college, it doesn't help you. You know, it's like, right. like all the things that they're they're saying. It's like nothing is as direct and concrete and effective as cash.
0: Plus, you can frame everything else the government has been spending on in terms of how much money that could have been in individual citizens' pockets, which is kind of a cool way to challenge other ideas or status quo. And it makes it very it makes you feel it much more personally than these broader, expensive, huge projects that other uh, people in the campaign might talk about.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is it is really interesting, guys, where, you know, like the the, the Democrats have uh um, the Democrats too, it, it's it's strange where, like that they they also need to think much much bigger about uh, what can be done uh, for people uh, because people have lost faith in a lot of these programs to be able to deliver value to them, and for good reason. I mean, we we look at it and we sense that it's not actually going to touch our lives.
0: Yeah. Well, but how do you feel about basic jobs then? Because this is one that's been tossed around a lot too, and I know some of your competition in 2020 have expressed interest in it. I think Cory Booker in particular has talked about it before. But how do you think those two plans stack up between basic income and basic jobs?
1: Yeah, I think basic jobs uh, is a terrible idea. And, you know, I I go down a couple of roads with it. Um, One is that if you look at the history, any time the government has initiated a large-scale employment program, the people that have been in that program have been unable to transition into private employment afterwards. Uh, both private employers and people on the ground just don't regard it as real work or real training or real experience, and so you have a marginal group of workers that stay marginal. Uh, you know, the government is not equipped to be able, and that's happened every time we tried it, and every time anyone else has tried it. So there's no reason to think that it would be any different. the The second thing is that you'd wind up with a lot of people doing work that's really not that productive, um, because that's just a, a part of the package if you start out declaring you're going to employ everyone and so there'd be a lot of people doing nonsense work to survive and then that population is just going to grow over time because of automation and new technologies so if there's one sure path to dystopia in my mind it's having everyone work for the state in unproductive jobs pretending that they have value um, which is where we would head if we maintain this subsistence model of economic deprivation and its relationship to work. Um, we need to to take on the bigger challenges of figuring out what kind of work is inside of each person that they, you know, and obviously like, you know, like it, it, it's not like everyone's going to become an entrepreneur. I mean, that's unrealistic, but giving people real agency and determination is to me vastly superior to imagining that the government is going to find a sensible job over the long term for millions of Americans to do when it's been tried and failed in every other
0: context. What do you think makes the basic jobs idea attractive to some of the other candidates and maybe, you know, voters as well? Like, why do you think, because I I think Neil and I had the exact same reaction you did that it seems silly (laughs) to make somebody break rocks for no value to get money. But uh, it also seems very kind of, you know, Soviet-esque, right? Uh, You've got to just like sacrifice your time and labor to the state in order to, get your bread. But why do you think that is attractive to so many people?
1: It's attractive because of like the current set of structures and institutions where you think, okay, um, this is great. There's just like incremental add on. Everyone understands it. Like you show up nine to five, we pay you 15 bucks an hour, you get benefits, and we find stuff for you to do. And you know, it'll be great. Like we need people to do stuff anyway. So like that, that's, it's one of those things that you you have to be a little bit removed from reality, <laughs> like like the reality of the crowd is going to be vastly different. Um, but it seems like it continues to value people, even though in my opinion, like actually, like not the way to value people because like it, it should. If you value people intrinsically, you would uh, pay them like uh, a stakeholder and not pay them as like a serf. <laughs>
2: right.
1: <laughs> yeah. But it just feeds like our existing uh, mindsets. Um, more easily. Like you don't have to do much work to convince people being like, Hey, what's that? We need more jobs. Here's some jobs. Like pay these people. Great. They show up and like, you need value. You need work. You need purpose. Like you're important. Like your, your time is valuable. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's, but it, it's something that we have to get over, but it's just easier for many politicians and potentially voters, um, to frame things in what they already know.
0: So it's kind of a related question to that. Uh, and I haven't heard this criticism of the UBI ideas as much, but I, I think there's something to it, which is that as citizens, we have a limited ability to keep government power in check, uh, which we can really only do through paying taxes or leaving or you know taking up arms and marching on Washington. So would putting a pretty decent portion of the population on a government subsidy make it easier for not you, obviously, but a more totalitarian president after you to take control, right? Would people be more kind of indentured to the government if they were relying on monthly checks from them to keep living?
1: It's an interesting question, man. I mean, to me, I think the relationship might work the other way around, where like if you were getting uh, monthly checks from the government, you'd um, be able to, to you know, have a little more independence and in, like what what you want to do. So you could frame it either way, you know, like. To me, one of the reasons why, like, I feel so strongly we need to head this direction is that, like, we're going to wind up there the good way or the bad way. <laughs> in my opinion, mm-hmm. and so if we get there the good way, then people will have like a, a much higher level of integrity um, and self determination. But I, I do think the shoe is going to be on the other foot because if you imagine a world where everyone's getting a thousand bucks a month, and then I'm like, you know, the dictator wannabe, being like, oh, now I'm going to like make people do stuff or, or whatnot. Like, as soon as you touch people's universal basic income, they would storm those gates like,
2: you know, pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. So it'd almost be the other way around. I see what you're saying.
1: Yeah. It's almost like the other way around where it's like, um it's like that saying where it's like if you owe me a million dollars, you're in trouble. If if you owe me a billion dollars, I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well I kind of like the flip question, or I guess it's not really the flip question, but it's the related question is kind of, you know, I, I think you mentioned this in the book too, where we are increasingly moving to this uh, like winner-take-all economy in, in a variety of fields. And, you know, it seems like more and more fields. Do you think, you know, do you see a future, I guess, where it's possible? And the follow-up question is, how do you stop that? Where you have, you know, let's say a couple different companies or a handful of companies almost like controlling U.S. government policy. And I know the that does happen to an extent already. <laughs> but like as the economy moves to more and more of a winner-take-all, type of situation you know I'm thinking specifically of you know Amazon Google Apple companies like that that have immense scale you know what do you view as the ro- role of government to kind of keep some of that in check or, or is it not the role of government
1: um, so our government does not have the uh, the frameworks to address what's happening in our economy in terms of Amazon Google Facebook and the like um, because their framing around antitrust laws is harm to the consumer which is like hey if you have a monopoly you can gouge people we don't like it so Amazon's like, we're lowering prices, we're not raising prices. And then the government's like, huh, you're right. And now we have no idea what to do. <laughs> <laughs> and so that is the dynamic of this economy in this era, where it's just going to keep on moving. I mean, Jeff Bezos might be the world's first trillionaire. That's unfathomable in a particular way, but he's probably not going to be the last, <laughs> like our economy's right now. So to me, like, there, there are different ways to try and go about this. But to me, the most benign way, the most challenging way, in a way, and it is to, like, not say to everyone around the country, like, hey, you can all, like, start a world-beating internet company or, like, you know, like, the goal, and this is, like, the, the where I went in the book almost involuntarily, uh, is that, like, we have to start trying to define human success independent of various economic measurements. So the the winner take all economy dynamics like if we do nothing it's going to end in bloodshed and revolution like i i believe because that's been the case in every other situation in human history where if you have too much wealth concentrated in the hands of like too small a group of people then there's a bit of a freak out um or a lot of a freak out and in the US like it's unclear whether like you know what that time frame would be like it might it might be a long long time because uh, Americans, by most measurements, have gotten less violent, not more. I know it does not feel like it. So to me, if if I were president, my goal would be to sit with the folks that are astride some of these incredible behemoth world beating companies and say to them, look, guys, like you're going to have to give something back to this society and you're going to be better off for it. Like your consumers will have more money. Um, you'll be happier. You'll you'll seem like a hero instead of like a robber baron. Um, But we need to come together and, and make that happen fast because there are going to be unprecedented levels of wealth falling into people's hands. And I'm not the type that's like, you know, like in, in many ways, the great challenge is to make that more OK, because trying to build a system where you pull that back ends up being really like authoritarian and very negative ways, in my opinion.
2: Yep.
0: Would that be how you pitch it to other uber wealthy individuals who aren't necessarily in those companies as in because in some ways, this is almost like domestic insurance, right? If you're making tens of millions of dollars, right, working at a hedge fund, and that wealth is only getting more concentrated, in some ways, you almost want a system like this just to prevent your, you know, to prevent all of the Hamptons getting raided one day,
1: right? Yeah, 100%. Like this is very much enlightened self interest. And many people see it. I mean, I I was with some folks on Wall Street, and we agreed that riots are bad for business. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
2: I think we can all agree on that.
1: (laughs) One of them said to me, um, if you told me I had to worry about riots in America, I would have said you were crazy 10 years ago. But now I totally agree with you. We need to get in front of this. And after the riots is potentially too late. Uh, So, I mean... American history suggests we're going to have to wait for the riots, <laughs> which is not a great stance, but I'm hoping we can do better this time. And I'm, I'm optimistic about it.
0: So related to that, and this was kind of similar to the question that I, I asked you on Twitter that started this whole thing. Have you read The Sovereign Individual, by the way? Oh, I, I haven't. Okay, uh, that, that's fine. You don't need to for the question. I was just curious. But we highly recommend it. We highly recommend it. It's <laughs> a great book, especially if you're interested in the the crypto stuff. But. There's an idea in the book that as American economics becomes more and more fragmented and as you have these crazy wealth disparities we're seeing now, you will eventually end up in a situation where the elites either leave or create their own kind of local city states within the country and in some sense try to hide themselves off from the rest of the citizenry. And I I got your answer on Twitter, uh, which I liked. But is there? Do you feel any concern for that if things do keep going worse in some of the ways they have? If we start to see more, say like mass shootings or riots or anything that you know would hopefully be avoided with universal basic income? But does that seem feasible to you at all that there would actually be this kind of exodus of the one percent in?
2: America's future if things trend the way they have been well and Andrew I think um and before you answer I think you had mentioned something in the book about that being true for startups and for companies right where when things start going downhill the sort of the top people sort of get out right and that's like the first sign of things are are really about to go a lot worse for that that company we're just we're wondering like we this came up during our discussion is like does that also apply to countries like the United States
1: it does to some extent, in part because like the, the patriotic loyalty uh, among many uh, elites is um, not as strong as it probably was a generation or two ago. And I reference in the book that people are buying bunkers in various places. And a lot of the flyaway properties are not in the United States. Like some people are getting cabins in the woods type things and like missile silos. But some people are doing like the New Zealand uh, getaway. And so there there's certainly people who will leave at various points, if things get really ugly and messy. Uh, I think that's been the case throughout, you know, like I, I will say that uh, America will keep most all of its elites for like a longer period of time than many other societies would. Yep. But there would for sure be some um, slippage around that uh, if things were to become very dark. And that's what we have to preempt, you know, like that, that is the pitch that you're saying or that I was presenting to these Wall Street guys and others, is like riots are bad for business. This is enlightened self-interest. Like if you pay a little bit to lift others up, then that's good for you. Like you know, let, let's make it so you don't have to go to New Zealand because it's very far
2: away from most of the things you like. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, true.
2: Well, we we also read in addition to Sovereign Individual, we did a, a book called Emergency by Neil Strauss, which is kind of kind of similar in the to what you were describing, where people are trying to get away. And you know, it's a kind of a fun narrative nonfiction, but it does go into some of these things. One. Thing that he brought up in that book, which was kind of new to me, but the process by which people like renounce their citizenship for tax reasons. And then, you know, they're like, it's a long process, it seems, but then there are, you know, ways you can do it or places you can go and you're sort of exempt from US tax. So I have two questions related to that. So we see in the US, like Texas in particular, right, has done a lot of ad campaigns to try to draw people from California. Um, You know, some of this works, some of it maybe hasn't, but we see some of that like local competition. First part of the question, do you think that we'll see more of that like country to country targeting, like, you know, maybe a place like Singapore or some other place trying to target, you know, wealthy Americans like, Hey, come here. And, you know, you'll pay this much lower tax rate. So that's, that's kind of part one. And then part two is, you know, how do you think the VAT having a VAT would affect that behavior? Because, on the episode what came up was if those people even if they leave the US if they want to keep doing business here they would still be paying that VAT on all their business transactions so
1: and every other major country they move to also has the VAT generally higher yep
2: yeah so you wouldn't really escape it escape it that way so it sounds like the VAT is almost a crucial part of keeping that equation stable
1: Yeah, really, I'm not that worried about, like, some flight of elites, especially for, like, some mild VAT. I mean, like, this is just, like, an eminently rational policy that catches us up to a lot of the rest of the world in many respects. And if you leave on that, then you must be, like, a Scrooge McDuck type that just loves, like, (laughs) freaking jumping into, like, the gold coin vault and like you're so freaking worried about losing like any gold coins that
2: you'll freaking move to New Zealand. I mean that makes no sense. Yeah, that's what came up on our sovereign individual episode too. It was it was kind of like, you know, how bad would it have to be before you left, right? Like yeah, yeah. what what's that threshold? So
1: so to me really the competition for talent going on is not that like Singapore is like trying to induce western elites to move there. The the real problem is that we are not getting as many talented people to move here that will end up starting businesses five or 10 years from now. Like my parents came over from Taiwan in the 60s and 70s. My dad now has 69 US patents to his name. And, you know, I, I, my brother and I are doing all we can to contribute to this society. The, the same people in the same boat now, like might choose to stay in another part of the world, like build a business there. And like Trump is not helping. So that's really the competition that we have to get back in the game on is we have to adopt a much more inviting and i can't like i can't wait as president would i not be the most compelling billboard to immigrants around the world saying guys like you can come to the united states and then your son can become president yeah this is a fair society Yep. let's go let's do it and just forget about the orange guy that was here a minute ago <laughs> <Right>. yeah. <laughs> yeah it would be like the best way to repair that image that's for sure yes i offer myself as the other <laughs> side of the pendulum like a friend of mine said <laughs> that the opposite of donald trump is As an Asian guy who likes facts and figures.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually it we weren't we weren't planning on going to this question next, but since you brought it up, do you think that Trump getting elected is helpful for someone like you who's not a career politician? Or do you think that he's, you know, kind of shit the bed so hard that it makes it harder for non-career politicians to do well in twenty twenty?
1: I mean, the way I read it is that if you look at Donald Trump uh, winning and Bernie Sanders is outside success and even Barack Obama, like a couple of cycles ago, um, the American people have been desperate for some sort of change pretty clearly because our economy is shifting under our feet into quicksand that's like sucking more and more people up. And so Donald Trump is an emblem to the accelerating decline of our civilization. And uh, he certainly has opened people's minds where like someone when I'm running for president, then they say like, well, you and then they think about it. They're like, well, there's no reason you can't win. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so and it's because they're doing the math in their head. And they're like, wait a minute, Donald Trump won. So like everything I'm about to say doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so, so on that level, he does help. And then there's what Chris Rock said, which is that, you know, you needed George Bush to start making like massive, massive messes to get Barack Obama. So then uh, Donald Trump is going to give us Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Now, not to compare myself to Jesus, but you know what what he means is that uh, the pendulum does swing and certainly I would not be running for president if Donald Trump was not our president now because to me, like he lit a fire under me and many other people to say, like we have to do all we can to keep our country together, really integral because the disintegration is real and it's speeding up.
0: Yeah, no, that that makes sense. And- I think we had talked about that a little bit too, Neil, where hopefully, I mean, I hope at least that we will see more people like you, Andrew, getting into politics. Um, I've actually got a friend in Austin who's thinking of that too, that he's he's been a startup guy for the last 10 years and now he wants to run for mayor just because he's sort of sick of career politicians. And I kind of hope that we're going to see more of that because like you said, the The facts and figures mind is incredibly refreshing. I saw your Reddit AMA and when you were responding with kind of like numbers and statistics, it was sort of like, oh, my God, like finally. right?
1: (laughs) Oh, thanks, man. I I appreciate that. I mean, uh, like we we need to get back to a reality based government. And I I hope to be a big part of that. My first state of the union and every state of the union, I'm going to have giant PowerPoints up with various measurements saying this is where we need to go. And here's where we are now. And you can hold me accountable, you know, and I can hold people in in my government accountable of trying to move things in the right direction.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, Andrew, like to that point, right? It's like, it's like as a entrepreneur yourself and you know, obviously you're around entrepreneurs all day. It's like, we're obviously all biased when we say this, but um, we, we sort of have to be close to reality, right? We can't really afford to be pie in the sky. And I think the country, at least from, you know, what it, what it feels like, it's kind of in that same situation, right? It's like, it's a company that, is sort of in this tough spot. And if you're if you're in your, you know, if you're sort of in the clouds about it, you're not going to solve the problems.
1: Oh, yeah, 100%. And that that is one of the appeals of Trump is that he seemed to be telling a version of the truth um, more so than many other politicians. And I, I'm going to to deliver, I, I have to say, I've been getting tremendous reception wherever I go because people recognize the truth when they hear it. And, uh, and when they hear it, it's very, very powerful. And they think, okay, what are we going to do? And then you realize that, you know, that there are, there are some big levers we can pull, in, in my mind. The biggest one is universal basic income. And then there are other things to, to do, but it, you can't solve a, a problem or address a crisis if you don't even acknowledge it's going on, which is unfortunately where most of our political leadership is right now, where they're like, you know, automation? Like, I, one guy said 50 to 100 years from now. <laughs> <Or whatever. laughs> it's like, look at the numbers, we're sort of in the middle of it. Uh, so it, it's been great that, the reality based approach uh, is so effective. I'm speaking at this major Democratic Party gathering in Iowa next month, which is going to be one of like, like it's huge, it's like a huge opportunity. It's the kind of thing that presidential candidates buy for. And I cannot wait to see like how they receive the message.
0: Do you worry at all that it's harder to communicate? Well, I don't have a great way to phrase this, but you're you're very smart and you're very numbers driven and you're very quantitative. And I think that that is hard in politics where you have to do so much of the like emotional appeal, uh exciting like statistics don't, you know, get people super jazzed up. Has that been a struggle for you? How have you adapted to that?
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, my my team and I talk about this a fair amount. And so that there um uh, there's going to need to be an evolution over time. And I'm excited about it where we're starting with facts and figures and automation and and the rest of it and then we're going to end with like giant hands like giving people money you know like crying children and (laughs) (laughs) and rappers and everything it's going to be great but that that's going to be the evolution i i have a close friend and advisor who's always advising me to be more human and the slogan of the campaign is humanity first and so in order to win i'm going to have to uh, evolve myself as a person and as a candidate over the next year and a half to two years. And that, that that's going, going to be an awesome challenge. But we see it and agree that uh, you need to reach different types of people in different ways.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Andrew, I know you have to go and I want to be respectful of your time. I'm sure that the schedule of a presidential candidate is not super forgiving. So... We're, we'll actually, we'll actually have a little wrap up after this too, where we'll again, tell everyone to make sure that they check out your book and stuff. And obviously Andrew 2020.com. Is there anywhere else you want to send anyone if they want to either connect with you, help with a campaign, uh recommended reading that they might like anything that we didn't touch on?
1: Sure. Well, thank you guys. The, the website's yang2020.com. You can Google Andrew Yang and I pop up in terms of reading. Uh, one of the books about universal basic income that got me going was a book called Raising the Floor by uh, the labor leader, Andy Stern. So imagine the largest labor union leader of his generation saying that we need to move to universal basic income because labor is never going to ever like assume the central role it once had. And that, that, uh, that was very powerful to me. It's not just techies being like, we're going to automate everything, you know? You're like, yeah, you would say that, techie. But then like the guy who's championing labor is like, labor is screwed. <laughs> you know, imagine that. <laughs> Yeah. like what like what's more problem than that? So if you want to read that book, it's called Raising the Floor. Certainly would love your help with the campaign. If you're hearing this, one thing we have is uh, is one for humanity, where you just come to the website and donate one dollar as a sign that you support the ideas of this campaign and that we need to move towards an economy that values people intrinsically values humanity first. Um. So thank you guys so much for this opportunity. I enjoyed it a great deal. And, uh, you know, like uh, if there's a demand, I'm happy to come back and do like uh, another follow up because I love stacking interviews on top where it feels like we can cover new ground. So I appreciated the new set of questions. A great deal.
0: That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was just going to say for everyone listening, definitely let us know what follow up questions you have because. Uh, We can either always send them directly to you, Andrew, or maybe we can do another round sometime if you're ever in in New York City. That'd be super fun. This was a great conversation.
1: Yeah, let's totally do it, guys. It's easy. I'm in New York much of the time, and I enjoyed it. So, um, you know, if if your listeners are into it, we can have a whole series. It'll be fun.
2: Yeah, and I would love as this, you know, as this topic sort of gets more and more talked about, you know, talked about because of the campaign and, and just because of how society is moving It'll be really interesting to see how it evolves. And that may be a great time to have you on, too. When you know, kind of like it's just out there and it's being very heavily debated. I mean, I think it'll be really fun to have you back on. And, and I'm sure we'd get a ton of listener questions about it after this episode.
1: Yeah, the, the bigger people think, the more that they, they wake up. But we can make this real uh, together. And I, I I love the spirit that drove you guys to do what you do. So thank you for this. Well, let's get together in New York soon.
2: Let's do it. Yeah, That sounds good. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks so much again, Andrew. Thanks, guys. See
0: so, yeah. you Bye. All right. You know, he's
2: so cool. Yeah, that was awesome. That was really fun. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> yeah, I almost wish we had, like, a whole two-hour episode with him. Like, I feel like we could go yeah. into so many different things. Yeah. I would well, love, like, could... the, next, the next one that I'd love, like, if we do have him back on at some point. I'd love to dive yeah. more into, like, the Venture for America stuff. Oh, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, just to, like, because I feel like he's been to a lot of these cities. Yeah, there's just tons of extra questions we could ask for the next episode if he you know if and when that happens yeah and also i mean
0: there's all of his other political stuff that we didn't touch on he's got good stuff on his site i mean let me go back here a lot of his i mean policies are stuff that i think we've talked about on the show Uh, And obviously I don't want to turn the show into a big political banner, but (laughs) Andrew Yang political show yeah, (laughs) made you vote for Andrew Yang. Yeah, (laughs) It's the the new title. No, but I I honestly like him a lot, which is cool because I usually am not a very political person. Yeah. So it would be, it'd be fun to come in and either talk more about other stuff he is in support of or the venture for America. Honestly, I don't, he probably can't do this because it's not a very political candidate thing to do. But it'd be really fun to have him on for like a wine episode where we just talk about random stuff for
2: two to three hours, including some of his stuff. He doesn't seem like a normal type of politician, though. So it could be—I don't know—he might be down for it. He might go for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he—I <laughs> don't know—he just seemed really laid back.
0: It would engender him to his constituency, I think.
2: Yeah, I, I totally think so. I mean, it'd be cool just ask him. Yeah, like just have like a—I uh, don't know—just sort of like a free-form discussion. Yeah. No, that was fun. That was a lot of fun. I wonder how our episode with our upcoming episode with Donald Trump would go. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That would be hilarious. Really.
0: So uh, have you read a book? <laughs> that would be hilarious. Anyway, I suppose uh, let's see. What what all what all do we need to remind people of? Patreon. Yeah, well let's let's start with <laughs> Andrew. Yang2020.com. Check it out. He does have the the one dollar thing that's like the entry point just to get on the email newsletter i'm probably gonna go do that right after
2: we hang up here have some skin in the game
0: (laughs) and yeah so yang2020.com if you want to support andrew obviously the book is the war on normal people by andrew yang uh if you didn't get it from the last episode i would definitely check it out that's probably another way to support andrew indirectly right because he's going to get some cut of that and aside from that i think that's All of the Andrew stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say this episode was interesting.
0: Oh, and follow him on Twitter. He seems active on Twitter. This episode started because I tweeted a question about the book, not to him. I just included him in the tweet, and then he responded to the tweet, which was super cool, and uh, it will be amazing if he wins that
2: we had this conversation from starting on Twitter.
0: Right. (laughs) It's another friend that we made through Twitter.
2: So he's on Twitter. So his his handle is uh, Andrew Yang VFA. So at Andrew Yang VFA,
0: he's got to change that to Andrew Yang 2020.
2: Yeah, you should go grab the handle. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Oh,
0: he's he's got that one, too. He's got that one, too. I think that's like his that's his official campaign account. And then he's got
2: his personal account. Got it. I think the one he responded with was the VFA one.
0: Yeah, the VFA one.
2: Yeah. And I guess if you if you enjoyed this episode and you enjoyed uh, the war on normal people episode, definitely check out Sovereign Individual, Emergency, all the sapiens and homo deus episodes.
0: Yeah, he quotes he quotes uh Yuval Harari multiple times in his book. So he's a big Harari fan, I think.
2: Well, and I think the cool thing about Harari too, if you listen to the episode, you'll you'll get more of this, but it just shows about how a lot of these ideas that we take for granted are really just ideas and stories. Yeah. that are agreed upon by society. Uh and so to Andrew's point about thinking big, it's just you know, maybe people think UBI is crazy or ideas like that are crazy because, you know, maybe we aren't thinking big enough as a society. And it's really just an idea. Everything that we have today is really just an idea, too. Yeah, it's true. Any other episodes that are related to this one?
0: I was looking through the list. Those are the ones that jump out for me, too. Yeah. We're getting to that fun point where we have crypto. to actually go We didn't through... ask enough about crypto. Oh, it's true. We never got to the crypto question. All right. Well, we'll have to save that for next time.
2: Yeah. <laughs> he mentioned it a few times. He did mention blockchain a few times. But... Yeah,
0: he alluded to it. Yeah. And I, I think I could kind of predict... Roughly what you I mean so the question we didn't get to was uh, do you see any risk of a VAT accelerating adoption of a crypto economy and I feel like it would have been similar to the the elites leaving it kind of similar to the leaving yeah. question right where it's like you know that might happen but that could happen regardless of UBI and so it's sort of like a null point yeah right because it's not some, it's not something that's only a problem if UBI gets implemented like that is a problem with or without UBI.
2: Yeah, well, it it is for a VAT. It's different for a VAT versus how our economy is. That's current. true. The VAT it yeah. could just change the estimates, right? So, like, basically, with the question, out like, I guess, the follow up question um, would be, you know, I, I think you're right. We can probably predict his answer <laughs> um, on that. Like, the follow up would be, you know, how does that change the estimates of how to pay for it, right? So, let's say, mm. you know, if if there are out of you know X number of transactions that happen per year, a certain percentage of those would now happen just on the crypto economy that changes how much you'd collect from the vat yeah because you wouldn't collect the vat on the crypto transactions
0: you could just make crypto transacting illegal although that would be very authoritarian that would that also be very hard to do yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i don't know we we'll, we'll have to ask him that one maybe we can send him an email and yeah maybe we can paste his response in for the patreon
2: supporters Ooh, oh. could definitely do that or we could ask him that one after a couple glasses of wine there we go <laughs> Might be some different answers. I feel
0: like he's probably got, I mean, because he's pretty in all the startup world. So he's definitely got good perspective on a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And it seems like he's pretty familiar. Which is super refreshing for a politician.
2: Yeah. Can't imagine too many other politicians being familiar with crypto. Yeah, exactly. Like having friends who work on it. Yeah. And
0: so I don't know. I, I really enjoyed that. That was super fun. One, I think because Andrew is a very cool guy. And two, I think we should maybe do more of these types of episodes too, where we bring on people after we've discussed their book because one it it seemed to mean quite a lot to him that we had done that which was great like that made me feel really good (laughs) about doing the episode I I imagine other authors would feel similarly
2: so it's an easier pitch yeah I think and well and it's also nice that I think he liked the long form because I'm guessing a lot of the interviews that he's done are are probably 15 minutes 20 minutes something like that at most
0: I don't know if you were on for when he was talking about that but I think you were.
2: Yeah. Yep. The right at the beginning.
0: That was one of the first things I mentioned. Yep. Yeah. That's like, hey, you know, everybody listening to this or at least 90% of them have already listened to us talk about your book for two right. hours. So we can just skip straight to the interesting questions. And I mean, especially doing what he's doing, where you've got to go on all these tours and he's super focused on UBIs as one topic. He's going to be saying the exact same stuff. Right. all the time every day so it's got to be nice to do an interview where you don't have to do
2: that right and where the audience already knows what you're talking about uh in terms of the high level stuff yeah that yeah yeah. having like a savvy audience who's pretty familiar with ubi it's got to be it's
0: probably nice i I would get so sick of that so quickly i could never i think just talk about the same thing over and over again yeah you definitely could not i don't think i could either (laughs) no I would eventually just start making up, to see, making stuff up to see if I can get away with it. That wouldn't go over well for a presidential candidate. Maybe that's what Donald Trump does. <laughs> Probably. He, he got bored of talking points, so he just makes shit up now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well. All right, let's go ahead and wrap up. First of all, if you're enjoying this show, we would love to see you over at our Patreon. So patreon.com slash madeyouthink
0: and the let's see main things you get with the patreon bonus material from each episode it varies a lot uh sometimes it'll be a whole extra half hour of content just talking about tangential stuff life stuff other interesting things going on in the world uh us goofing off and pouring ourselves more wine or mushroom coffee uh they're a lot of fun so you get that with the patreon you also get our detailed book notes and in this question you'll get uh, all of our questions that we were we planning for andrew including the ones we didn't ask so We'll paste those into the Patreon for you. You also find out about what books are upcoming, as well as have the opportunity to join Neil and I on a monthly live Q&A hangout that we'll be doing through YouTube or something like that, where you can chill with us, talk about any of the books, talk about anything else, say hi. We can all have wine. It'll be a great time. So uh, we're going to do the first one of those pretty quick here. So if you are interested in joining for the first one, now is a great time to check out the Patreon. So that's at patreon.com slash made you think. Did I forget anything about that, Neil?
2: No, I think that's that's what there are. I mean, I would say uh, in the future, there may be new bonuses. So definitely keep checking back there. That's true. Um, new tiers. That is true. So always keep checking back. Um, but I think, you know, what Nat said for all the different bonuses and all the, the nice things you get, I think in addition to that, it just helps keep the show the way that we and hopefully you like it without too many ads or, or any ads really. And not having to have any pre-roll or or mid-roll kind of adds to interrupt the the flow of the conversations. Exactly.
0: We tried it once, decided it wasn't for us, so we are sticking to the Patreon for now.
2: And I think the shows that we like to listen to in general, right? I mean, we never listen to the, like, you know, don't want to throw these podcasts under the bus, but... I don't really listen to the Joe Rogan pre-roll or the Tim Ferriss pre-roll. No, no, I
0: just skip straight through it. Right.
2: And we figured, you know, even from like an authenticity to our advertisers, if we were working with advertisers, you know, it's like we feel like our audience probably would skip those (laughs) two. Um, it's not really fair to the advertisers, then.
0: Yeah, you listen to it once, and you're like, "Oh, okay, they are also advertising meundies." Like, I'm just going to skip ahead to the episode.
2: Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, and you know, in a sense, I mean, like, obviously, they're not paying us a ton of money, <laughs> the advertisers that we worked with, but like the Joe Rogan ads, I mean, they're, they're they cost a lot of money, and you know, you don't want to you don't want to charge people for stuff that you don't know if people are even listening to. So, we just thought this was a better model for the show. The shows we enjoy do this, and if you're enjoying the show, this is a great way to support us and keep this model going and keep the show ad free exactly
0: so that is patreon.com slash made you think uh, aside from that there's some other ways you can support the show the best one as always is to keep telling your friends about it i haven't told you this yet neil but our last episode that came out beginning of infinity did about 33 percent more first day downloads Woo! than our last highest episode <laughs> which is bonkers
2: what was our last highest episode what was the what was the episode title for that one
0: uh the last peak was let's see here uh oh it was college dropout
2: oh college dropout wow 33% more than college dropout wow all right nice yeah
0: super high you guys are a
2: bunch of nerds i love it
0: (laughs) (laughs) and i don't think it's a super well-known book so i'm impressed that that one did so well but very happy with it obviously uh so if you can keep telling your friends about it. We would super appreciate it. Obviously, you can also leave a review on iTunes. That helps a lot. It helps us get more people like Andrew on the show because they can see that people are listening to it. There's really no external stats for podcasts, right? So the, the best thing people have to go off of are uh, iTunes reviews or you know if their friends have heard of it. It also helps us show up on other podcasts as recommended shows to check out. So... That's a great way to support the show as well.
2: And thank you to everybody who has been leaving a review. We've seen some additional ones recently. So thank you guys a lot. Yeah, no, we super appreciate it. And We read pretty much all of them. And some of them hurt us. Most of them improve our egos or build up our yeah, egos. Exactly.
0: <laughs> Although, you know, the the one critical one that we got about the vocal fry actually made me think of it and watch out for it. So <laughs> even though that was negative and hurtful, it made me a better person. So that's true. We appreciate even the critical ones. We didn't get triggered by that one. It's okay. No, yeah. no, it's okay. We don't need a safe space. Not yeah.
2: yet. Our <laughs> reviews are not a safe space, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Anything else? Well, I think if people do want to support the show in another way, other than the Patreon, you can go to madeyouthinkpodcast.com slash support. Um, we do have a bunch of products there that we use on a regular basis. Um, and if you click through or, or use the coupon code, it does help support the show. I guess we should mention Amazon as well is listed on there. And, you can go do your normal shopping on Amazon. It doesn't cost you anything, but Jeff Bezos throws us a little a little kickback for sending you there.
0: And that helps, you know, pay for all of our editing and post processing and show notes and all the other amazing work that Andres does. So we appreciate it and he appreciates it too. So yeah. I think I think that pretty much does it.
2: I guess the only other thing I'd ask is this is a uh, somewhat new format for us, right? Where we're covering the book and then talking to the author. So we'd love to hear what you think. Send us an email. Send us a, a tweet. Just, yeah, let us know what, what you thought. If you if you liked this, if you wanted the episode to be longer, shorter, hated it, just, you know, let us know. And, and we definitely take everybody's feedback into account. Yeah, because if you
0: liked it, we've got other popular books that we could try to reach out to the authors for. A hundred
2: percent. Yeah, and episodes that you guys really liked. I mean, we we can see those stats and stuff, so we can uh try to reach out uh like to Kanye West and try to get him to talk about college dropout.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there we go. That's a
2: good first one to shoot for, right? Yeah, I think
0: some of them some of them will be harder
2: than others, but <laughs> Hey presidential candidate to Kanye West. I mean, hey, it's it's in the same category. Same category, yeah. <laughs> Anyway yeah we can we can definitely try to do this more so just let us know uh, if you want to reach out to me on Twitter I'm at the rail s and I am at Nat Eliason,
0: and we will talk to you there all right I think that
2: does it see you guys next time see you all next time